Welcome to a story of Fabry disease in Australia. We are here to be part of an important discussion about Fabry disease, a rare genetic disease which, if left untreated, leads to substantial negative outcomes. We are joined by Associate Professor Andrew Kornberg, who is a paediatric neurologist, and Associate Professor Carolyn Elloway, who is a paediatric specialist in genetic metabolic disorders. This series will inspect practical information on screening, diagnosis, the importance of early intervention for this treatable condition, and the considerations for Australian practice. Welcome to the podcast on Fabry disease. I am Andrew Kornberg. I work as a paediatric neurologist at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I'm Carolyn Elloway. I'm a paediatrician, clinical geneticist, metabolic physician with the Sydney Children's Hospital Network. And that encompasses the Children's Hospital at Westmead and also Sydney Children's Hospital. The first uh, podcast is about uh, what is Fabry disease. Mm -hmm. Do you just want to tell the listeners a little bit about Fabry disease? Yeah, so Fabry disease, it's a rare genetic metabolic disorder. Um, it's classified as a lysosomal storage disorder. It's due to deficiency of an enzyme, alpha-galactosidase, within the lysosomes of the cells. And deficiency of this enzyme results in the accumulation of quite complex molecules, glycosphingolipids, particularly globotriacylceramide, within the lysosomes of the cells, particularly the vascular endothelium uh, within the heart, the kidney, and also the brain, but also the peripheral and autonomic nervous system. It's an X-linked genetic disorder, so primarily affects males, but we also know that females are not just carriers of Fabry disease. They can be as severely affected as males, but their clinical spectrum is actually a lot broader than males. What sort of presentations do patients have when they go and see their doctor? So um, just focusing on the paediatric patients, often the children will go to either their GP or may even get to a paediatrician, initially with some early recurrent unusual sort of pain that they experience intermittently, particularly in the extremities, the hands and the feet. And the children sometimes have a have difficulty explaining what the pain actually is but in general they will describe it as a burning sensation some will sort of describe it as a tingling prickly sort of pain but this is a recurrent problem and sometimes the pain can be so severe that children can't walk um, because the pain is that bad they don't like to put pressure on their feet Others, the, the parents may notice um, that they just don't tolerate heat particularly well because people with Fabry disease have reduced ability to sweat. They can also have episodes of unexplained fatigue, particularly when it's hot, um, and just may feel tired at various different times. They can also have recurrent episodes of abdominal symptoms, which can include pain, abdominal bloating, nausea, sometimes vomiting, or um, altered bowel action. So may have intermittent episodes of diarrhea, which can be sometimes precipitated by foods, particularly fatty foods, or they may have intermittent episodes of constipation. So again, they're all fairly non-specific, particularly early on. We know that these early signs and symptoms start in childhood, 
some reports have been as early as two to four years of age. In general, in early childhood, these symptoms start in males at an earlier age with more frequency and severity in males than in females. But despite their symptoms starting at an early age, we know that there's accumulation of the glycosphingolipids even before symptoms start. There's evidence um, from fetal tissue um, of accumulation of uh, globotriacylceramide uh, in the kidneys and a characteristic corneal change has also been documented in fetal tissue. Because all of these symptoms are fairly nonspecific, often children are misdiagnosed for several years. There's reports of children being undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for 5, 10, sometimes 15 years. That's unless there's a family history of Fabry disease. And I guess the key is that whilst these symptoms can be nonspecific, they're recurrent and they're episodic. But also the importance of the family history, because often there will be a family history of Fabry disease. So if a paediatrician um, or a subspecialist was to th even think about Fabry disease, the importance of taking a detailed family history can sometimes clinch the diagnosis. So it's important, I guess, that um, everyone's aware of the condition because it is uh, masquerading as uh, lots of different disorders, isn't it? Absolutely. And so a number of patients that I've seen have been to see various different uh, specialists, subspecialists, allied health professionals, and go through what we refer to as a bit of a diagnostic odyssey, um, often being misdiagnosed with various things ranging from rheumatoid arthritis to chronic fatigue syndrome to growing pains, unfortunately, before a diagnosis is finally established. So it really also sounds uh, very important to get a very good family history of similar problems because uh, uh, that may be the only marker in that child and unless someone does the testing. Absolutely, and it's um, critical to take a really detailed family history, um, asking specifically about um, early cardiac involvement and early renal disease um, in parents um, and extended family members, because unless you ask, actually ask specifically about um, the signs and symptoms, the complications of Fabry disease, then you won't actually be able to get a detailed family history to help um, guide the diagnosis of Fabry disease. As a neurologist, um, I commonly see children who have pain um, uh, and I look for Fabry disease, but uh, uh, to date, I have not yet diagnosed a child with Fabry disease. What's your experience uh, in Sydney? How do you diagnose uh, the yeah. kids? Yeah. Well, firstly, it's great that you're actually thinking about it because a lot of paediatricians and paediatric subspecialists don't really know a lot about Fabry disease. The majority of patients that I've seen have come to me because of a diagnosis of Fabry disease within their family. However, there have been a couple of patients who have been referred by an ophthalmologist after the finding of the corneal verticillata Interestingly, one patient was referred to our service with a question of whether the child might have a mitochondrial disorder. Um, and in fact, with a detailed history, 
um, and clinical examination were able to make the diagnosis of Fabry disease because he in fact had some angiokeratoma, which is also a sign of Fabry disease. Yeah, I, I always thought that angiokeratomas are something that you would see in adolescent patients. Um, is that your experience yes, as well? Yes, absolutely. So this, in fact, was an adolescent patient. Okay. Um, angiokeratoma can be seen in some children, but they tend to evolve um, with increasing age. So it's unusual to see angiokeratoma in younger children, but it's certainly something we'd need to look for. And as you know, Andrew, they're um, small, red, non-blanching uh, vascular lesions, often starting in the umbilical region, um, the upper um, segment of the lower limbs, the truncal region, but also sometimes um, in and around the mouth. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know of two excellent reviews of um, uh, paediatric Fabry. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give those references uh, later on, but Laney and Schiffman talking about uh, that it's not uncommon uh, in their population making a diagnosis of between five and seven years of age and the symptoms being uh, predominantly um, pain. That's actually quite extraordinary yeah. that they're making diagnoses that early based on the pain. So yeah. clearly they've done an extremely good job educating their paediatricians um, to think about Fabry disease. You mentioned this uh, diagnostic odyssey. I mean, that's something uh, discussed in the literature. Um, how many specialists uh, have they seen before they get to you after a, a diagnosis? Yeah, so I'm usually the end of the road. So by the time they get to me, um, they've usually been seen by their general uh, practitioner several times. Um, they may have been seen by a paediatrician on a couple of occasions. Sometimes they get referred to uh, paediatric gastroenterologist, neurologist, rheumatologist, but also sometimes allied health professionals such as physiotherapists before they actually get to me. Why is it important to diagnose early? Does treatment make a difference? So it is really important to make a diagnosis early because this is a progressive disorder. So we already know that there's accumulation of the glycosphingolipids from very early, in fact, fetal life. So with time, the progressive accumulation of these glycosphingolipids cause cellular dysfunction and ultimately end organ damage. If we get in early, we can try and prevent irreversible organ damage, particularly to the kidneys, the heart and the central nervous system. And even if we start treatment late, um, we may not reverse those, um, that organ damage. Yeah, I think your point discussing that in fetal tissue and uh, early on in pathology, seeing that there is accumulation already in mm -hmm. kidneys and, and the cornea does illustrate the importance of making a diagnosis and treating early, doesn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So your experience uh, with um, screening, uh, what would you be recommending to paediatricians or gastroenterologists or renal physicians or any other person? What should they be doing? Yeah, so I think my experience in general, firstly, is that it would be unusual for a paediatric nephrologist to pick up Fabry disease. Mm -hmm. Always possible, but it would be unusual because renal involvement tends to occur with disease progression. Similarly for neurologists, it would be unusual for a neurologist 
to pick up Fabry disease based on um, a transient ischemic attack or a stroke. Now, I know it's difficult because a lot of these signs and symptoms are fairly nonspecific and we don't want every child with nonspecific abdominal signs and symptoms screened for Fabry disease, but I think we need to raise the awareness and educate our colleagues about taking a detailed clinical history, particularly asking about uh, episodes of acroparesthesia, heat intolerance, the lack of or reduced sweating is a key feature and usually won't come out um, voluntarily by a patient or a family and so it does specifically need to be asked for. Your, your point about um, uh, stroke, uh, for example, being very uh, um, uncommonly associated with Fabry disease in childhood is something that I can speak about because um, we see about 40 or 50 children a year in Melbourne with stroke. And we did a, a screening of all those children. We did not pick up Fabry disease in that cohort. So I guess stroke is a later manifestation, yes. but it still does occur in young adults. And I guess for um, adult uh, physicians and neurologists to think about uh, Fabry disease would be important, I suggest. Absolutely, certainly in the adult population. Um, from memory, various screening um, programs, um, published and unpublished, have reported a pickup rate of about 1% of um, unexplained or cryptogenic stroke in the adult, young adult population being due to Fabry disease. What do you think we should do um, to get this message out about Fabry disease to our colleagues? It's um, a challenging question and it's a question that we ask and consider in a lot of rare disorders um, that we want to be diagnosed earlier than they currently are. I think firstly, we need to raise the awareness of these rare genetic disorders, particularly where there are specific treatments available for them. And so education programs, um, talks at various meetings, conferences, particularly targeting the general paediatricians, the gastroenterologists, um, podcasts such as this, any sort of education to raise the awareness. I think once paediatricians or gastroenterologists have heard about Fabry disease, whether they may not or may have um, been involved in a patient with Fabry disease, it at least raises the awareness. And so when they're seeing patients, they might recall the discussion about Fabry disease. And that's my experience at the moment, is that um, some of the gastroenterologists that I'm working with at the moment are now thinking about Fabry disease and starting to screen for Fabry disease when they haven't been able to explain um, some of the abdominal signs and symptoms um, in children, particularly those children who are always, you know, been diagnosed as having something like um, irritable bowel syndrome. So what are the steps with regard to making a diagnosis? Yeah, so it's relatively straightforward, making a diagnosis in a male, and that would involve firstly to um, measure the actual activity of the enzyme alpha-galactosidase. That can be done in a blood sample, um, either a peripheral blood sample where the leukocyte enzyme activity can be measured, or alternatively, 
blood can be collected onto a dry blood spot card and that can be sent to the National Referral Laboratory for measurement of the enzyme activity. In a male, we would um, expect the enzyme activity to either be not detectable or significantly reduced. And that is enough to make a diagnosis of Fabry disease. The biochemical diagnosis of Fabry disease can then be confirmed genetically by mutation testing of the GLA gene. Once a mutation is identified in an individual, then other family members, uh, at-risk family members, can subsequently be tested. A female who doesn't necessarily have a family history, who hasn't had any genetic testing, a paediatrician thinks about Fabry disease, the diagnosis can be a little bit more challenging. And that's where the paediatrician needs to have a higher index of suspicion of Fabry disease, look for all the signs and symptoms of Fabry disease, including an eye examination for the characteristic corneal verticillata, which does require a slit lamp examination, looking for the presence of any angiokeratoma, which may or may not be present in children, then measuring the same enzyme activity, but keeping in mind that females may have normal or only slightly reduced enzyme activity, but can still have significant problems associated with Fabry disease. So in a female, it does need to be followed up with genetic testing. So mutation testing of the GLA gene and a pathogenic variant within that gene will confirm the diagnosis of Fabry disease. So, I mean, a dried blood spot um, in the right scenario is a relatively good place to start? Absolutely. I mean, how do we go about ordering the test? So I guess in a big teaching hospital where you and I work, it's relatively straightforward. We fill in a pathology request form or even now order it online. The patient goes to pathology, has the blood collected and that sample gets sent to the National Referral Laboratory. Alternatively, blood can be collected on a dry blood spot card, which we mentioned earlier. And again, that card would be sent uh, to the National Referral Laboratory. However, not everyone works in um, a hospital with a big laboratory that can process samples. And so there are kits available for paediatricians and subspecialists who may be working in private practice or in rural or remote areas. But there's also information available on the Sanofi Genzyme website where there is actually specific request forms available on the website which can be downloaded. All right, so um, an astute um, gastroenterologist or a paediatrician um, goes ahead and does the dried blood spot. It's very suggestive of Fabry disease in a young, in a boy. Um, what would be the next step after that? The next step would be a referral to a, um, a specialist who has experience in um, Fabry disease, and that's usually a genetic metabolic specialist. Um, a genetic metabolic specialist would then arrange to see the child and the family. Um, we would, um, again, get a, an idea of the manifestations of Fabry disease in that child. We may be required to confirm the diagnosis by genetic testing, screen other family members, do cascade testing in other family members. And I guess the next question is, if the patient has significant um, symptoms, when do we initiate treatment? 
And the various treatments include symptomatic treatment to start with. So treatments to, for example, treat the peripheral acroparesthesias. Sometimes it might just be a matter of avoiding triggers, but that's pretty difficult in children actually because um, the triggers can include exercise, uh, sporting activities, and we don't want kids to miss out on sporting activities, but maybe choose something that uh, may not involve standing out in the sun for prolonged periods of time, um, not overheating, um, treating intercurrent viral infections, particularly fever early, because those sorts of things can lead to an acute fabric crisis. Sometimes then we might start some medications to alleviate the um, peripheral um, pain. So unfortunately, providing these medications, whilst it may lead to some initial uh, improvement in the symptoms, it's not addressing the underlying pathology. And in the meantime, the disease is still progressing. There's still accumulation of the glycosphingolipids and there's ongoing potential cellular damage. So more specific treatments for Fabry disease include enzyme replacement therapy. Enzyme replacement therapy essentially replaces the missing enzyme. It's given by a fortnightly intravenous infusion. In children, we sometimes use intravenous cannulation. Other children, the younger children, we may need a central venous access device such as a port. Children do need to come into hospital for the infusion and it takes several hours. After a period of around six months, if we're confident that there's been no adverse event um, associated with the infusion, we can sometimes then look to transfer the care to a hospital closer to home. And there's also home infusion programs available as well. But this treatment is lifelong. It's an exciting time for Fabry disease with new treatments becoming available. At the moment, the treatment for children is essentially enzyme replacement therapy. And again, my understanding in, um, of it is that it makes a difference. So uh, treating patients early actually alleviates a lot of the complications going forward. Absolutely. So what I've seen, but also what the um, uh, documented evidence in the medical literature um, has demonstrated is early initiation of enzyme replacement therapy certainly does improve the pain that children experience, it does improve the abdominal symptoms that children experience. And we know that some children actually become quite depressed because they become socially isolated. So it actually does improve their quality of life as well. But also what we're doing by providing enzyme replacement therapy is aiming to avoid irreversible organ damage. And there's studies that have demonstrated clearance of the glycosphingolipids from renal tissue when treatment is started early. I think um, we've really got through all the important points uh, on Fabry disease as an intro into this podcast. With regard to the DBS uh, pathology slip, we will put a link in the uh, podcast for the listeners. And uh, thanks, Carolyn. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you for joining us about this important discussion on Fabry disease. 
For more information about blood testing kits, please visit sanofigenzymeonline.com.au forward slash pathology forms forward slash PDF and see our notes for resources and links. Please join us next time as we continue to explore Fabry disease in the context of Australia. And remember, Fabry disease is rare, but your screening practice doesn't have to be.